if we're going to be consistent, and this is really my point, then we can't in one breath say, well, Judaism is independent. Mount Orthodoxy is independent, but then in the next to say that Judaism is roughly the equivalent of a contemporary political movement. That's just mutually exclusive. It's, it's terribly inconsistent with the independence and autonomy that the Jewish tradition uh, needs uh, to retain in order to, for us to be truthful to it. So I think that uh, it's it's a particularly important moment for us to push back against both extremes and to reclaim Judaism as having its own postures and positions and uh, let the chips fall where they may. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. On December 12th, the well-known political commentator Ben Shapiro published an article in the Jewish press entitled Modern Orthodoxy's Moral Failure. Its opening paragraph reads, Modern Orthodoxy is in the state of crisis. It is in the state of crisis because its leadership has, in large measure, abandoned its central principles in favor of political expedience, surrendering long-term interests, for short-term tactical maneuvering. While it's patently unfair to summarize a reasonably long article in just a few words, Ben Shapiro focuses on what he sees as the weak-need response of numerous modern Orthodox institutions to the challenges posed by secular morality, and in particular, the acceptance of LGBTQ plus identities as inherent and definitional. He writes, The conflict between Jewish identity, rooted in halachic observance, a belief in the morality of the Torah, and a deep-seated sense of free will, and the secular worldview has reached its apex with the rise of the LGBTQ plus movement. That movement reduces identity to sexual desire, the most powerful feeling human beings supposedly have, and then demands that society's institutions celebrate all of its claimed identities. The movement goes even further, demanding that society's institutions celebrate identities that run directly counter to biological fact by giving credence to men identifying as women and the like. Shapiro's article garnered significant comment in the Orthodox world. But while I don't question his sincerity in voicing his opinions, I think that his characterization of modern Orthodoxy, as well as Orthodoxy's response to the challenges he outlines, misses the mark. The reality, in other words, is not what he describes. In fact, there are a number of issues I had with his article, and fortunately, Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Sinensky wrote a response that was published in the Jewish press on December 21st. Rabbi Dr. Sinensky was kind enough to talk to me about the points with which he takes issue in Ben Shapiro's article, where he thinks that Shapiro is correct, and what practical steps are necessary to move forward from here. Before we begin the conversation, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, podcasting gets more popular every day, and that means that there are two important pieces of information you should have. First, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way of reaching hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. And second, if you want to have a podcast, you need to make sure that it's well-produced so that you can be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. 
So if you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds or thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, entertaining, and above all, effective podcast. Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Sinensky is Director of Judaic Studies and Upper School Principal at Mainline Classical Academy in suburban Philadelphia, Director of the Lamb Heritage Archives, and Editor at the Lair House. Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Sinensky, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thanks so much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be with you. You wrote an important article in response to Ben Shapiro's well-known article, which was in the Jewish press. His article was entitled, Modern Orthodoxy's Moral Failure. So I'd like to read your opening, the opening of your response, which was also in the Jewish press. Ben Shapiro cites the obligation to deliver rebuke as a basis for his attacks on the leadership of Yeshiva University, the Orthodox Union, SAR Academy, and modern orthodoxy as a whole. But it is, in fact, Shapiro's arguments that are deserving of criticism. This response notes Shapiro's intellectual sloppiness, his mean-spirited attacks, which are rooted in tendentious and uncharitable interpretations, and his emphasis on dogmatic commitment, which reduces compassion to a talking point instead of a moral imperative. In closing, I briefly sketch a path forward for an authentic modern orthodoxy that avoids the extremes adopted by both Shapiro and some of his more liberal-minded critics. So Tzvi, I want to ask you, what was the reason that you felt it was important to respond to this particular article? I'm sure we've all seen plenty of articles, you and I both, which bother us, with which we disagree, and we don't write responses. You, however, felt that it was very important that this article be responded to in a timely and direct manner. Why did you do it? It's a great question, Scott. It really boils down to first and foremost exactly what I wrote. You know, we we all read articles that we might find to have a certain degree of intellectual sloppiness, a certain amount of you know mean spirited nature uh, about the attacks or criticisms that the author might levy, um, which might uh, include all sorts of different dogmatic statements, but kind of lack in terms of the sensitivities involved. Uh, this is kind of a conflation of all of the above. It wasn't just one, it was just this kind of uh, this conflation of just all this sloppiness and all of this dogma and all of these assertions that led to sharp criticisms of massive institutions that have tremendous way over a community. I, I just felt that all of those taken together absolutely mandated a response. And then I'll just add very briefly, uh, in addition to that, two more things. The first, Critical thinking. You know, critical thinking, I think, that we've seen, whether in the wake of the pandemic and looking at our institutions and some of the major voices in modern media that are out there. Um, critical thinking is in short supply. And, and I just felt that there was a need to correct and to clarify so many of the assumptions and assertions that were simply unsubstantiated. And then when those are kind of uh, presented as Torah truths when they're often unfortunately misrepresentations of Torah as they were in this particular case, in my judgment, I just felt it necessary to respond. Okay, well, thank you for explaining that. I'd like to go through some of the specific problems you had with Ben Shapiro's article. We're not going to go through the entire article itself. People who are interested, I will link to it in the show notes in the description of this podcast. But I'd like to go through your response to what he said, and I'll give a few examples right now. Let's begin with the fact that Shapiro cites Maimonides, Rav Soloveitchik, and Rabbi Norman Lamb, and you say he cites them inaccurately. Could you go through what he suggested and what was incorrect about what he said? 
Sure, absolutely. I, I think that the kind of the overarching point is that um, is that it's interesting. A number of people pointed out and kind of in response to say, well, you could have made many of the points that Shapiro made without these, and therefore, you know, why bother with them? But but I think that it's crucial. Number one, he did use these as a platform, as a foundation for making his argument. Number two, the rabbis teach us, and the seal of God is truth. If someone makes uh, an assertion, either if it's untrue or if it's cherry picks. In other words, there's no argument that that clarifies why did I choose this quote when I could have chosen an opposing quote or the like. All of those, I think, go back to this idea of critical thinking, I think are, are really important to point out. With regard to these three points in particular, so just in, in very brief, with regard to the Rambam, Shapiro describes modern orthodoxy as, uh, among other things, allowing for secular or general wisdom to enhance Torah truths, and that's absolutely correct. But the Rambam actually goes a step further. For the Rambam, Torah, of course, is absolute truth, but so is metaphysics, and so is the science, as he saw it in the truth of his day, the Aristotelian or the medieval version of Aristotelian uh, philosophy, as he understood it. For the Rambam, these necessarily both were true. Now, of course, he would ultimately reject philosophy if he felt that the Torah absolutely 100% was crystal clear against it. But so long as he could reconcile them, he saw philosophy and science, not as merely enhancements, but as fundamentals, foundational to determining truth. So to merely call it enhancement is a misrepresentation of the Rambam. And it's in, I believe, the same paragraph or the same section, certainly, where Shapiro cites the Rambam in buttressing his thesis. That's just one example of a misrepresentation. The, the case of the Rav, so again, in, in Shapiro's description, he describes unorthodoxy as meaning that we can use uh, science and general wisdom to provide evidentiary basis for our beliefs. Uh, the Rav was extremely skeptical about exams. This is very much the antithesis of so much of what the Rav wrote about the idea that no. That's not how the Rav thought. The, the basis for Emuna is romance. It cannot be described. It cannot be philosophized. He was opposed to many of the medieval uh, kind of uh, predilections or reinterpreted or understood differently. The Ramam, for example, and this is well known to anyone who studied the Rav seriously, the notion of calling the Rav as a supporter of using science as a basis for providing evidence for the truth of religion is just completely incompatible with everything about the Rav. And it was really important to, to point that out. With regard to Rabbi Lynn, the quotation is, is correct. 100% it was just a kind of a part of accurate description that Shapiro provides of uh, Torah Umada, of uh, Rabbi Lam's belief that uh, the Torah and general wisdom both have significance and sacredness and uh, Kiddushah that's associated with them 100%. But the difficulty is if you're going to provide you know, one argument from a thinker, you have to be able to justify logically, why am I quoting this and not that? One could have just as easily quoted Rabbi Lam's lifelong commitment more than 50 years, more than half a century, talking about moderation, civility, refusing to call out those who, who really called him out unfairly and in grotesque fashion throughout the course of his own career, Rabbi Lamb did. And you can't go around and just say, well, I'm going to pick this. This quote, because it's convenient, but ignore other essential elements of the thinker. If we're really bringing the thinker into the conversation, we have to be able to defend why I'm cherry-picking one source and not the other. Okay. I'm now going to get into more of the heart of his argument, rather than those aren't tangential points, those are 
points that are important in terms of truth, but they aren't the essence of his argument. The essence of his argument really is, as I understand it, dividing orthodoxy into three groups and saying, or I should say modern orthodoxy, dividing them into three specific groups and saying they have failed in various ways. And I'm going to go through how I understood what he meant by this. And if I mischaracterize them, please correct me. But he really says that modern orthodoxy has three specific groups. One is what he calls the secular orthodox. And he says that they have embraced a morality of secular modernity. And he gives an example. He gives more than one example. But his example is SAR High School. And he says the principal there stated that the school wants to create a positive environment for LGBTQ individuals. And that's what he calls the secular orthodox. The second group is what he calls the nervous orthodox, who are apparently embarrassed by halakha and halachot that prohibit homosexuality, even though they don't deny them. Obviously, I'm being a bit reductionist here. I'm taking his long article and summing it up in just a few lines. And he puts the Orthodox Union in this group. And the third group is what he calls the clumsy Orthodox, who understand the halachot, do not validate secular values, but they use clumsy language that implies that they're caving in. And as Shapiro says, they're trying to have the baby, have their cake and eat it too. And he identifies Yeshiva University with this third group. So first, can you comment, Svi, on these categories? You can tell me if I didn't really characterize them properly whether you think any of what he says has some merit, and if not, what is incorrect or wrong about his characterization? Sure. As I understood, I can't speak for Shapiro. I'm not the uh, the absolute expert, but I think that the way that you described it uh, seemed to be consistent with my understanding as well. With regards to the three, so while I did later on make the point that I think that some of the points that Shapiro makes in terms of the essence of uh, uh, the tensions and how we deal with the tensions in our community, which which uh, perhaps we'll come to in a little bit, uh, in terms of those being correct, with regard to these three, I did emphasize the ways in which I thought that it was ultimately, uh, it was an inaccurate and unfair set of characterizations, uh, and really on all three counts. With regard to the secular orthodoxy, uh, the first point is, and I didn't emphasize this, but I think it's worth uh, elaborating here as well, uh, secular orthodox, we can describe what such a category is. But to describe it, an individual or a group that uh, are generally deeply committed to any institution, such as SAR, such as Rabbi Kroll, deeply uh, committed to Tariag Mitzos, and this is kind of what they teach day in and day out, and you have uh, a concern about it, even if it were a correct uh, depiction of, uh, of a criticism of, you know, or a questioning of, uh, you know, of halakha uh, as it applies to uh, LGBTQ, Nonetheless, you know, the characterization of just completely secular orthodox is, you know, reductionist and, and, and grossly, I think, oversimplified and really quite unfair. But more than that, I just simply thought that the the, the reading was uh, extremely uncharitable and just simply uh, not uh, not justified by the very quote that Shapiro cites. And Rabbi Kroll does indeed say that such students are to be embraced uh, and specifically intentionally embraced in his school. It's not to say, and I've actually discussed this with him and uh, and. I know that this generally is consistent with his view. So this comes from personal knowledge as well as just from a reading of the quotation in its own right. But this is not what the quote actually says. The quote does not say, as Shapiro claims, that such activity is considered to be normative or acceptable or consistent with the boundaries 
shortcomings of halacha, but rather that the students, qua students, just like all of us who have shortcomings, and these students have unique challenges and, and uh, extraordinary challenges that I think many of us would not uh, begin to, could not conceive if we're not experiencing them ourselves, simply that these are individuals who are not relegated to second-class citizens, but they are embraced for whom they are and are nonetheless notwithstanding and, uh, all of their challenges, and perhaps precisely because they're struggling so much, they are not called second-class citizens, and they are essential parts of this school community. And I would hope that others, and I know that there are countless other educators who uh, who feel very much the same. So to, to claim that this particular representative of secular orthodoxy is, is really just uh, is really just uh, orthodoxy, you know, in is really or just secularism in the garb of orthodoxy, kind of a wolf, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. I think is really just a, is just unfair and inaccurate. With regard to the uh, the second category, so this, uh, which you hear uh, terms the the nervous orthodoxy. So uh, what he can certainly entitled to disagree with the policy of the OU, but the OU never claims for a moment that they were again that they were abdicating halakha or full fledged commitment halakha. They're making a pragmatic argument, which orthodox organizations have made on countless occasions since there were orthodox organizations in the United States of America. There's basis for this kind of posture among many, many achronim and among many prior statements, not just of the OU, but organizations far to the right of the OU. It happens to be that Aguda took a different tack in this particular case. But this is a machlokas l'shem shemayim, which falls under elu elu chayim. These are different organizations that are both committed fully and uh, totally to, uh, to the truth of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's revelation. And the question is, under what circumstances, or in this particular case, do we impose that, or do we uh, declaim that that position must be adopted in the public sphere? This is not a matter of uh, Jewish values in terms of what the Torah requires from us. This is the debate about what is most sagacious in the public sphere. And so it's a, it's a jump from there to Shapiro's line that the, that they're endangering the future of orthodoxy. It's completely unsubstantiated in terms of you know, his characterization uh, of the OU. Oh, with regard to clumsy orthodoxy, I, I must confess, as, as I wrote, I, I didn't fully understand or grasp what exactly Shapiro's argument was uh, in this particular case. I thought he actually had kind of conflicting or different kinds of uh, different formulations that went in different, you know, in different directions. But what I think is fair to say, no matter what, is that the argument that uh, the Yeshiva University agree or disagree, whatever one's position is on, on all of the, the matters that have swirled around the question of, of the student club there, but the characterization of clumsy orthodoxy is, is you know, and why you have Having, again sold out or you know threatening the survival and the you know uh, of orthodoxy because it created a, it responded to either public pressure or internal pressure, whatever it might have been and to create a student group that's explicitly consistent with halakha and simultaneously deeply com, uh, committed to being compassionate supportive of students there are many things that one could disagree about or agree with with regard to why decision but to call this uh, this decision uh, threatening the uh, extinction of orthodoxy um, i think is uh, i think is quite unfair Let's move on to Ben Shapiro's argument that the entire idea of a sexual identity as such, a person characterizes himself as gay or lesbian or anything else, runs counter to the Torah, because the Torah identifies these as actions, not as a form of personal identification. So my first question, Svi, is do you agree with him on that point? Then I have a follow-up to that. 
Sure, absolutely. Before I go, I just want to add just um, just one point, if I may, with regard to the, the whole uh, three categories of orthodoxy and all of that. I just think it's, it's worth noting as well when we, when we talk about the idea of, um, I appreciate that, in terms of just the, this whole notion of you know critical thinking and, and sort of the notion of when we label a group or and when we don't label a group, we call it something clumsy orthodox, right? Clumsy orthodoxy as if that's kind of a, a legitimate intellectual category. I think it's worth thinking about in itself, you know, in its own right. You know, if I would get up and, uh, and proclaim particular group to be representative of idiotic orthodoxy. You know, I think I'd be rightly called out as as, as not being respectful and and not just respectful to that group, but also intellectually disrespectful to in kind of fair argumentation. You know, I think what's fair is to characterize a group based on, uh, if you have a sociological group, there's a particular ideological position, for example, it makes a lot of sense, right? So we talk about Hasidim, right? So it's a particular group, there's certain leaderships, uh, there are members of the communities, a certain ideology, and then you have the response of the Misnagdim. Similarly, it's a a group. So these are fair sociological and ideological movements. And so we, we give them names, that makes a lot of sense. But to just call something or kind of call that just because I disagree with someone, you know, to then label it as kind of, you know, clumsy orthodox, you know, and so on and so forth, I think is really, uh, is not necessarily the kind of calling it a brand of orthodoxy as if that's like an ideological, my ideological posture is that of nervousness. My ideological posture is that of clumsiness. This is not uh, a form of orthodoxy, like neo-orthodoxy or modern orthodoxy. This is just a way of name calling and labeling uh, intellectual opponents or those, uh, you know, uh, no. In other words, both pejorative and intellectually unfair. Yep, that's uh, exactly right. The question of, of identity in terms of uh, in terms of uh, LGBTQ, uh, you know, and, and other members of the community, you know, I, I really think that we have to be consistent here. Of course, one could theoretically, you know, make the argument that we require some sort of uh, legitimate uh, metaphysical category for every single, you know, identity that exists. So, for example, if I want to refer to uh, any group or any movement, you know, I give the example of fascists or socialists or conservatives or liberals, or it doesn't matter. And I I want to say that I'm going to take a strict what I call halachic man posture. So following Rav Soloveitchik and say only if it exists as a strict halachic metaphysical category do we recognize its existence. So he says that his uncle Revelvo Soloveitchik, he didn't oppose Zionism. He thought that Zionism is a non-existent metaphysical category. Again, if one wants to take such an approach, one needs to be consistent down the line. I don't recall Shapiro or or others needing to make the argument that in order to have an identity as a liberal, that that has to be recognized in the Torah, or a fascist, or a communist, or a socialist. So I think we need to be consistent here. Now, if Shapiro is trying to say that the reason these individuals lack an identity is because their claims are just not correct, if his claim is that there really is no such thing as a homosexual orientation, or there really is no such thing as gender dysphoria and the like, then I think that we just simply know, uh, experience shows that medical science knows everything that we know knows that that's just simply not true. We cannot, and ought not and dare not stick our heads in the sand and pretend uh, or try to wave these things away. I think that's uh, theologically and factually just simply uh, nonsensical. So I, I don't know why Shapiro does this. If he denies the existence of these phenomena and therefore thinks that any such groups lack an identity, I think that that's uh, just simply uh, factually incorrect uh, and, and must be rejected. If his argument is that, well, there, this is not a metaphysical category that we know, then I think we, it requires consistency. And you know, my concern is that 
that by waving away the very existence of a category that, you know, that runs the risk or that can be a form of just simply denying uh, my, my oppositions, my ideological opponents, right to just say, ah, that's not even a real thing. Well, if you can't make that argument, then it just raises the concern that, that maybe really it's a way of minimizing, minimizing or, or even erasing uh, your political opposition, which I think is, uh, is so much of what's, uh, I think, uh, unfortunate and problematic in uh, cultural discourse today. So it sounds a lot like when I read your response to Ben Shapiro, that in large part you're saying he's being a hypocrite over here because he will identify himself as a conservative. He'll say such groups do exist. As we just said, he identifies clumsy orthodox and nervous orthodox. He clearly accepts the existence of groups and the characterization of groups. So you're saying that's really where the problem lies, at least in part. Yeah, in part. And again, I suspect or I'm concerned that, you know, to the uh, point, you know, the singling out of just this one group or, or maybe other groups, I don't know, uh, you know but at least in this article, that specific group is, uh, is lacking a right to an identity. Uh, it raises very significant concerns that it's really just a, a way of uh, erasing them from the conversation, which is uh, which is very, very concerning. Okay, definitely would be so. I understand that. I want to ask you about what you call Ben Shapiro's depiction of secularism, where you say it's rife with gross misrepresentation. Why do you think his description of secularism is so far off? Yeah, that's a good question, Scott. And it goes back to this discussion of critical thinking and kind of how we present uh, ideas in the public sphere. You know, we live in an age in which, unfortunately, it's very, very common for the truth of kind of the underlying or kind of the building arguments that lead me to my ideological conclusion are almost uh, are almost uh, roadblocks to be uh, avoided or kind of. You know, something that's uh, just kind of, you know, get it out of the way just so I can make sure that I get to the correct ideological posturing at, at the very end of the argument. Uh, but that, that's not how Talmud Torah works. That's not how Judaism is meant to be. And that's not how uh, critical thinking is, is meant to be constructed. And I think that the most uh, glaring example of that in Shapiro's article is his treatment of uh, his, de his depiction of secularism uh, as a movement, which he describes essentially as a determinist and as, uh, as contending that there is no free will because everything is biologically driven. And he cites uh, three scholars, uh, secular scholars, in, in support of this position. And there's no question that determinism and materialism and physicalism and uh, scientism, all of these kinds of movements certainly hold sway and are certainly, uh, I think in many ways, problematic, deeply problematic from a Torah perspective. There's no question about that. But to then jump from there to describe hundreds of years of post-enlightenment thought in one fell swoop as just being able to be boiled down to this position is, is really just inexplicable. It's hard to know where to begin. And that's why I think it's so important and difficult to kind of know how how to respond it's just like this this broad stroke of an assertion that just doesn't begin to capture uh the truth of really uh what is so it's a subtle difference but a crucial difference if i say that this is an influence an important influence in our society that's one statement if i say this is secularism uh, and therefore, it poses a, a conflict with uh, modern orthodoxy. That's a that's a very significant overstatement that I think requires correction. 
and even the thinkers to say three thinkers like Spinoza, they are the ultimate representations of hundreds of years of development of secularism, whatever that is. It seems to me to be a reductionist in the extreme. Yeah. And that's why I said, you know, uh, again, going back to this idea of, you know, straw man arguments, you know, I think this, this, this is not a straw man argument, you know, makes that look, uh, as I said, as like a, an ironclad logical syllogism. So I think this is just, just part of really restoring um, that uh, intellectual integrity in terms of our whole discourse and, uh, and just being accurate um, and not, not sweeping in, in unreasonable ways. You note that, I'm going to quote you, conservatism or libertarianism is not Judaism or modern orthodoxy any more than liberalism is. So, Tzvi, why do you emphasize that Judaism or modern orthodoxy in general cannot be the equivalent of any contemporary political movement? Why is that an important point for you? I understand inherently, of course, that's true, but it seems to be an important emphasis for you. Yeah, and I'm glad uh, I'm glad and appreciative that, that you picked up on that and uh, that you highlighted that, Scott. I, I do think it's interesting. I remember when I was growing up uh, and we would hear uh, calls from non-Orthodox uh, personalities, rabbis, etc., for tikkun uh, olam and the like, and there was kind of this, this critique that I think is a fair critique, which is that, A, are we using the term the term being used rigorously, number one. Is that really how the term tikkun olam is used and kind of, you know, throughout, uh, throughout uh, Jewish history, throughout uh, our scholarly literature, et cetera? But more than that, there's also a question of, is that kind of the, the sum total of, of Judaism or, or, is that, is that, uh, or is that really run the danger of conflating democratic or liberal positions with Judaism in a way that strips away the unique contributions of, of Judaism. I might think that these are part of the Jewish legacy, but not perhaps its whole, I don't mean to oversimplify non-Orthodox positions either, but uh, you know, perhaps it runs the danger of overstating the place that certain values have in the totality of, uh, of Jewish tradition. I think that that's a fair uh, and uh, important critique. I think what we've seen more recently is uh, I've grown, grown a little more grizzled and kind of continue to observe things, uh, you know, over the last decade or two, is that in the Orthodox community, while certainly we're more heterogeneous than just one movement, uh, kind of have to be consistent here, right? And uh, just mm -hmm. characterize all of us, you know, for the last two decades, even, never mind, I'm just Yes, <laughs> one fails. Um, but I think that you know, I think that we see a particularly strong movement. Yes, we do see um, some among the Orthodox community, kind of as an extension, perhaps, or you know, however one wants to describe it, as kind of also continuing to you know, or continuing that line of of perhaps overdrawing the identity. Uh, between contemporary liberal values, which themselves have shifted in recent years, uh, and uh, and Judaism, but at the same time we have kind of a counter a counter trend now of uh, a major movement within the Orthodox camp uh, that uh, is increasingly conflating and identifying between lowercase c conservatism or libertarianism, which I don't identi identify those either, but kind of that that school that uh, ideological school of thought to conflate that with Judaism as well. And we see this in uh, we see this in podcasts, not yours, of course, but we see this in lots of podcasts. We see this across social media, and we see this in uh, in the sound bites, unfortunately, that we find um, from Shapiro, but also from his ideological opponents. It's it's really across the board. So I, I think it's just it's a moment when we need to just kind of press the, the the pause button and say we need to start from within Judaism, and we need to look out to the world that's around us and to find the truths that all sorts of different 
different perspectives have to author uh, have to offer kind of as Shapiro describes as the outset but if we're going to be consistent and this is really my point then we can't in one breath say well Judaism is independent non-orthodoxy is independent but then in the next to say that Judaism is roughly the equivalent of a contemporary political movement that's just mutually exclusive and it's it's terribly inconsistent with the independence and autonomy that the Jewish tradition uh, needs uh, to retain in order to, for us to be truthful to it. So I think that uh, it's it's a particularly important moment for us to push back against both extremes and to reclaim Judaism as having its own postures and positions and uh, let the chips fall where they may. And if I can add a point to that, it's not only its independence and autonomy, although it is that as well, it's also the fact that, at least as I understand it, our mandate, lahagdil Torah to make Torah great and glorious, includes the fact that Torah cannot be fit into any box outside of itself. In other words, having multiple approaches within Torah, being able to see things from different perspectives and understanding that there could be multiple and sometimes even contradictory ideas that can still fall under the rubric of what Torah is, is an important aspect as well. And once we identify Torah Judaism with a specific political party or political movement, we're undoing and undermining that idea of making Torah great. That's how I see it as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's such an important point. And uh, this idea of Elu Ve'elu is uh, from both sides of the political spectrum to complete that with Judaism, really, I think you're absolutely right. It undermines uh, the notion that we can have the same core values but arrive at different either political positions or social positions or what have you, uh, even though we share the same core belief. Yeah. You also argued, Tzvi, that Ben Shapiro reduces compassion to a talking point and does not treat it as a concrete principle. Can you elaborate? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I, this is, I, I think, a, a really, uh, I think, important point, and it's it's more about kind of the the rhetoric than about uh, any particular position that Shapiro takes. But uh, but it's just very interesting to me that Shapiro's uh, the thrust of his argument is all about we have to be true to our dogma, we have to be true to beliefs, we can't sell out, we need to be true to modern orthodoxy. Modern orthodoxy means that we do what we do and we reject secularism, and these are unequal and mutually exclusive. And uh, and by the way, we should also course feel badly for people who are suffering um and, and uh i think that that's uh it, it's better to say it than not to say it but i think we need to think more deeply uh about the complexity of the issue and it, it relates to what you just said about and complexity and here it's my point is not just that we need to rep, uh, be able to uh to accept as legitimate you know, differing opinions within the rubric of Torah, but more than that, that we need to be able to balance conflicting values in both of our hands. That we're not, you know, the Gemara talks about this idea of yamin mirach mikarev and small mirachek, that we have this balance between drawing close with the right hand and uh, and distancing with the left, you know, to the extent that we are going to be dogmatic and say, well, this is Torah truth, and therefore we need to reject certain, uh, certain practices and certain principles as, as simply inconsistent with authentic Torah Judaism, well, what happens that that's all very nice and good and very, very important, but that doesn't answer the question of if I am a high school principal, educator, whatever it might be, or I'm a shul rabbi and I have a gay member of my community who comes to me either for support or I have to make a decision. What am I going to do? Am I going to say, I'm so sorry, I don't mean to say Shapiro is saying this, I just mean to say this is how the rhetoric comes across. The rhetoric is coming across as I'm so sorry, but you don't have an identity ask any competent and responsible educator, and that is not going to be the kind of rhetoric that we want to put out there into the community. What we want to be doing to say, we're going to be true to orthodoxy. No one's going to be asking a, a rabbi or a principal, et cetera, in general, you know, please tell me that, you know, 
that everything that I'm going to do is necessarily going to be permissible. That's not the conversation. The conversation is how can I ensure that this individual knows what the Torah says, but at the same time receives the support and can continue to be uh, part of the, the firm community to the best of one's ability. We're not here to just kind of say, well, you can't do it, you know, part of the way because you were born with a certain orientation. Now we're kicking you out of the community entirely. We're not legitimizing uh, certain practices. We're simply saying that it's more complex than simply saying, I'm sorry, but I have a dogmatic principle that I need to uphold because I'm in the middle of a culture war. I can't really talk to you about this right now. No, you know, or if you have a, a gay parents who have made whatever decisions, they didn't come and ask a Shiloh before they did, but they adopted a child and they apply for for the child to uh, be registered in a local school. I mean, leaving halachic authorities have said, what are you going to do? Deny a Jewish education to this child because I'm in the middle of the culture war? It's more complex than that. So we can't, uh, you know, we can't obviously can't uh, deal with every single case and complexity here. And I'm not saying that there aren't, you know, incredibly painful trade-offs, but simply acknowledge that there are trade-offs and that these are human beings who are not trying to be difficult. These are human beings who are experiencing something incredibly, uh, incredibly challenging that we can't begin to conceive and that we're, you know, our job is not to be a judgmental uh, of, you know, of every single decision that they make, but rather to, uh, to be understanding, to be compassionate, to be supportive, uh, and not in a condescending way, uh, but in a, a genuine and, and truly supportive way. I think that that's, uh, you know, that, that doesn't come across sufficiently in uh, Shapiro's language. And I think it's absolutely essential, not only in our public policy, but even the language that we use uh, to communicate that very, very clearly. So let me play a little bit of devil's advocate right over here about that particular point, because there's a concept, we were talking about it over Shabbat, of kula. you are stringent on one matter, but as a result, you're inevitably going to be more lenient in another matter. That happens very often in certain cases where someone is very strict about one thing, but they're very lenient in another case. So someone might argue, again, I'm playing devil's advocate, I'm not arguing this point, but someone might say that our modern Orthodox institutions, in a sort of parallel way to what I just said about Ahumra, they're so intent on being compassionate, which is a major important Jewish value, and no one's denying the importance of compassion. But as a result, they're downplaying the equally important Jewish value of heterosexual marriage and classic Jewish family. So first of all, would you say that's true? And second of all, how do you balance those values? Because it's almost inevitable that by playing up one value, you're going to have to kind of play down the other one at the same time. Is that happening here? Sure, that, and that's a great question, and uh, and really, that's that's the million dollar question. That, that's kind of my point. In fact, I think in many ways it's not a devil's advocate argument entirely, but it's exactly uh, the point that I'm trying to make. What I'm not trying to argue is that uh, Shapiro's wrong. That our our halachic principles and that our you know and that the, the value of heterosexual marriage and its importance should be ignored or should be downplayed or should not be part of the conversation. In fact, I would go further and I would argue that I think it's important for us to find ways to educate positively, um, positively, sensitively, but positively about these values. And I actually would agree that I think we're really struggling, Scott, to convey these values precisely because I don't know if it's compassion. I think it's actually fear of uh, of, uh, of professional consequences. I think it's exceedingly difficult fear of creating unrest in our student bodies and creating divisiveness between uh, staff members, between uh, board members, between parents, between students. You know, the, really uh, along the entire uh, the entire subject, they're very good, but I think um, but I think ultimately uh, ultimately um, 
challenges that we need to, to overcome in order to be able to talk positively about these values. And I do think it's an area uh, for growth and an area where we need to do better. My point rather is that the answer to this question is not to go to the opposite extreme and to say, well, Judaism has these values, so therefore, you know, we're, and we're selling out and therefore we can't even balance or introduce the elements of compassion, but rather each case is complex. Each case, if both of these are true values, then A, yes, we need to be able to talk about not only Rahmanim bin Rahmanim, but also, yes, the value of heterosexual marriage and the reasoning for the terrorist prohibition upon homosexual activity and so on and so forth. At the same time, there needs to be a, a profound understanding of the, the extent and the depth of the theological challenge that we confront and the compassion, all these kinds of things. So yes, in every particular situation, there will need to be a, a decision. But as you say, just like as you say, it needs to be done in balance. And that sense of balance, I think, yes, we could do some to redress that balance in the community. It's exactly where I say that Shapiro is correct. It's, I think he's right. We are too reticent to talk about it. And it is important for us to talk about it openly and to find ways to have constructive, healthy conversations in which we advocate for our values and explain them to our communities and to our students and so on and so forth with sensitivity, but also with confidence. But that's not what's coming across here. What's coming across here is a screed, is an attack, is a polemic. And polemics are inherently unbalanced. And I think that that's exactly uh, what we want to avoid. And we want to recapture that, that kind of more dialogical conversation. Okay, that's very fair. I want to follow up with another point, which I saw actually on Facebook. Someone criticized your article saying that, and I'm not going to say exactly what this person said, but effectively saying that the community has to come before the individual in expressing values, meaning at first, this almost would say the compassion isn't even the value that's relevant here. It's important to express our values, heterosexual marriage, etc. And afterwards, we can, on an individual level, deal with people, individuals, and offer them as an individual's compassion. But dealing with the entire community, we have to be very strong in terms of how we express values, how we express what we believe in. And in offering compassion, so to speak, as one of our primary values at the top, we're kind of missing the boat vis-a-vis -vis our responsibility towards the community. I'm curious how you would respond to that. Sure. I, I, I find it to be a confusing posture to believe that we have to choose between the values that uh, that we convey to the community. Uh, of course, if we uh, if we you know communicate too much, then everything will be lost in the shuffle. But if we say, and if we, we one can make the claim that in today's day and age, because we believe that uh, heterosexual marriage and the traditional family is under threat, therefore no nothing else is on the table, nothing else is relevant. The only thing that matters is standing up and posturing and positing dogmatically and strongly, this is what we believe in. But guess what? Number one, we have will therefore, thereby not succeed in a presenting a, uh, a an uplifting and inspiring view, but rather will just simply uh, give an angry face to, to orthodoxy, to Judaism, not just to the wider community, but to our own, uh, which would be a terrible, a terrible mistake. Uh, but, but two, I, I believe that our community is capable of integrating and hearing both values at once. I don't know why uh, uh, that position of our uh, approach to uh, heterosexual marriage is prior to our uh, profound commitment to compassion and to love. We question uh, the yichos, the lineage of an individual who is not does not act with rahmana. Why are we choosing between these two? 
it, it's perplexing to me to, to suggest that our community can only hear one at a time. And then once they, they get the first one, you know, in, in what, how many years? Five years, 10 years, 20, 30, for 100 years, maybe we'll start talking about compassion somewhere down the line when we finally kind of, you know, hit the message through and it's, it's kind of, it's, you know, not, not through their head. I think that we can do both. Okay. I want to go back to what you mentioned a few minutes ago about Ben Shapiro having some points with which you agree. So can you tell me what aspects of the article, what aspects of his argument you find compelling and accurate? Absolutely. And I, th- I thought, Scott, it was really important to underscore this point. I, I think that part of the, the kind of common political discourse, which has become uh, almost ubiquitous, unfortunately, today, is uh, the sort of this notion of scoring points for my team and where it's kind of political football. Um, and, uh, and the worst thing you want to do in that kind of environment is to admit that my opponent had a legitimate point, unless it's a tactic that I can then use to clinch the argument and really win it for my side. That's not how Talmud Torah works. That's not, you know, when Rish Lakish wanted, uh, you know, Rish Lakish was despondent uh, after, actually, Rabbi Yochan rather was despondent after his Chavusa Rish Lakish died. It wasn't, yeah, he was despondent because he had no one who could truly challenge him by bringing forth 24 arguments that were contrary to Rabbi Yochan's initial assumption. He wasn't looking for a yes man, he was looking for someone who would really challenge him so that collectively together they could arrive at truth. And that's what the Chavrusa, that's, that's what Talmud Torah is all about. That is Talmud Bavli in a nutshell. That is rabbinic Judaism. And so- Derek Hagav, I'll just say to me that that's why I believe that the institution of debates is inherently an anti-Torah endeavor because it's about scoring points, has very little to do with actually admitting the truth that your opponent has. Yeah, and I, I'm in agreement with you, and I've just had uh, Derek Hagav to Derek Hagav that I think this <laughs> issue also, uh, not that you're suggesting otherwise, but I think this goes back to Plato, and, and this is the sophists, as he depict them. This is the basic modern term of sophistry, but this is really, I think, a fundamental question. What is the purpose of a debate? If the purpose of a debate, as is all too often the case nowadays, but this is was true 2,500 years ago as well, and in too many circumstances, is just sort of to convince others uh, of the right of my position, you know, then uh, that's, that's very different uh, than actually trying trying to find the truth for myself in that, that sort of humble, genuine search. So I was trying to uh, to perhaps model that or to exemplify that. And, and just to, to say, look, I, I spent this entire article arguing, you know, kind of pointing out what I thought were the flaws in uh, in Shapiro's article. And I think I think my critiques were, were, were fair uh, and were accurate, but that does not mean that my intellectual opponent in this particular case doesn't have extremely important and accurate and things that to say that, that we need to take seriously. And, and I think that that's, and it needs to be part of the discourse. And specifically the two points I thought he, he made that were, that were compelling to me were number one, the point as I mentioned earlier that I think we are struggling to have open uh, forthright conversations about our values and about uh, the basis for, or, or the vision for, a positive vision for uh, what a Jewish family looks like and how we grapple with some of the, uh, the extraordinary challenges theologically, uh, practically, communally, et cetera, uh, that we're confronting today uh, around all these uh, around all these questions, and that's number one. I think that that's there are good reasons for it, but as I said before, I think that uh, ultimately we do a disservice to our community if we don't have those conversations. We don't educate uh, in a positive and forthright manner. I think Shabiro is, is correct about that. And number two, I think he's correct that ultimately the Torah perspective is not consistent with a full-throated LGBTQ agenda that we find uh, out there. And I think it's important to, to observe that, yes, there may be a certain, you know, kind of 
at least practical points and taken as a whole in, in its entirety, I think that there is conflict and there is uh, inconsistency. And ultimately, um, we need to be true to our values and yes, to up- uphold Torah truths, um, even in the face of, uh, of uh, sharp criticism from, uh, from the contemporary world. Then, given that he has a point, and this is my final question, really, and in some ways you've already answered this partially, but I want to put it out front and center right now, given that some of his points do have validity. So in your opinion, what's the right way to thread that needle? Meaning, how do we, educators, rabbis, people in the community, how do we acknowledge the halachic reality? How do we avoid diluting Torah ideas and trying to make them more in line with what, for lack of a better term, secular morality would say? At the same time, being able to show that compassion and being able to be accepting of various people. In other words, how do we put into practice this idea, this the right approach that would both combine compassion and fealty to halacha and halachic values? How do we do that practically? Yeah, such an important question. How many hours do you have left to discuss this? Scott? Well, it's one forty-five in the morning for me. So Shachris is at seven. I think I've got some time. You're good to go. I got you. He has a question on Shachris. All right. So we've got five hours. I think we'll be all right. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, as uh, as you say, as soon as we ask kind of the practical question, but even on the theoretical level, of course, these are the questions of the day. Uh, so I, uh, as you know, out of respect. That's why it's the last question. <laughs> Yeah, that's what that's what they said at the the Seder in Bnei Brak, didn't they? Uh, and anyway, El Regalachat, perhaps we can try. I'll give the I'll give the uh, yeah the hill the hill answer. There you go. Uh, just a couple of just very general kind of uh, approaches, rather than you know we talked about a couple of specific issues, but obviously the specific uh, cases that arise are are, uh, are endless. Um, but I, I think the, the first thing that that we need to do is is to stop the polemicizing. I think that that's, you know, the very first thing. And I think as soon as we stop polemicizing and expressing angry rhetoric and all of that, and we open ourselves up to a learning posture, you know, I, I think that many of us are already doing this, but I think we're, we're in, we're in a world in which that's so countercultural. You know, I'm concerned deeply about the next generation of Mechanchen and of Rabbanim who are, you know, edu- you know, communal leaders uh, from, you know, and, and throughout Judaism, really, really uh, beyond the world, you know, uh, it just uh, all faith communities and all communities really, you know, growing up in a world of just this angry partisan rhetoric, what does that bode for the judgment and things like wisdom and balance and, you know, and good judgment and sagacity. And I think that the first thing we need to do is just to, to start learning uh, to reflect much more critically, critical thinking, uh, and then uh, to engage in that, that teaching. I think that, that that's number one. It starts with openness. It starts with learning. It starts with humility. And that is the beginning uh, of all learning. And I think that's true, not only for our students, but it's true for our community leaders of today and, uh, and especially for tomorrow. Uh, that's number one. And I think when, once we do that, I think that the, the next real step in this you know, goes back to the question of why do we struggle so much to kind of have these conversations or to actually make this headway? And I think that we need to have some really hard conversations, not about our ability to actually address the issues on the ground, because issues come up and we are addressing them. I and mean, rabbis and mechanchim and, uh, and, uh, and uh, leading rabbanim are dealing with these issues constantly. So it's not that we're kind of you know ignoring them. I think the challenge is to have public conversations and to, to educate in a proactive rather than a reactive way. And I think that there are a lot of things that are in the way. I think that for, uh, if you think about the incentives in uh, the contemporary rabbinate and contemporary education, they are all a 
against, I think, or many of them are against um, being able to talk about these things publicly. Uh, a rabbi gets up, you know, how many pulpits do I have that are available to me as a pulpit rabbi? And let's say I'm married, I have children, or, or, you know, or whatever my life situation might be, you know, I can't, it's not just easy for anyone. You know, if I'm not married, if they don't have children, whatever the case might be, for me to just get up and go to another city, right? And then I know my contract is contingent upon the whims of the local community. So now here, here are my, here's my question. I could either say that really, really strong divisive thing, split my community and have a whole bunch of people who ideologically oppose my position, seek to oust me from my position, thereby threatening not just my job, but potentially my career, or I could play it smart, quote unquote, and I can be a little bit more power of in my approach. I'm not saying that there aren't circumstances or scenarios in which rabbis might go too far to the opposite extreme, that they actually uh, undermine their own uh, respect in the community by, by avoiding difficult answers to difficult questions, but that doesn't mean that there are strong incentives to be forthright. I think there are a lot of dangers to that. And I think we have to ask ourselves really hard questions about how our community is structured. I'll just add there also that the Rambam, uh, you know, in his, his classic uh, position uh, opposed to uh, accepting money to teach Torah and, to, and all of that. It's actually, uh, my understanding of the Chil Hashem there is the Rambam actually believes in his letter to his student of Yosef Ibn he says, what should I do professionally? The Rambam says, just don't be a rabbi, whatever you do. It's like, you know, something, you know, like a uh, parent, you know, what kind of job is this for a good Jewish boy? You know, like, it's like, you know, it's like the, they the didn't Rambam. realize they were quoting the Rambam. And that's right. And I think that the Rambam is really getting at is that what ultimately it does is that it, it makes the Ram, it makes the, uh, it makes the, the rabbinic professional uh, contingent uh, upon the community and therefore uh, limits uh, the truth that the, the individual can speak. And I think the same is true, not just in the rabbinic, but I think it's true in education as well and it's the you know the 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 potential danger in terms of just looking at such a polarizing and divisive moment and all these kinds of things and the you know the dangers at the you know at the professional level where I really you know I could I could be putting my job on the line if I just go out and have a conversation with my students and I might not be properly trained to do it. So I think all the incentives and there's a lot of fear and for good reason not to be able to have these conversations. I think we need to ask ourselves questions collaboratively, lay leadership, religious leadership together as a community and say, our community is suffering by our inability to have not just judgments that are reactive to particular situations, but our ability to open up a real conversation about these issues with their students. They're thirsting for it. They want to understand, um, but we don't feel safe talking about it. How can we begin to have these conversations? And I think that that's where there's good reason that we're not having the conversation, but I think that's really where it starts. I think if we're able to uh, to really reflect in our own first and to uh, and to cultivate a sense of balance and good judgments um, uh, in the next generation of leadership. And we're able to bring our lay leadership and our communities uh, and our families on board collaboratively and thinking about what are the ways in which we can uh, responsibly uh, educate uh, proactively around these issues. I think we'll be in a much better position to avoid the kinds of polemics that unfortunately we're stuck with today. Well, that idea of avoiding polemics, trying to achieve a type of balance in our leadership and helping our leadership and all of us to discuss these issues in a healthy and forthright manner, I think you've just created a brand new podcast topic, and I've got to have you back to talk about that as well. Rabbi Dr. Tfisanensky, this has been very, very interesting and very enlightening, and it was an honor to host you today, and I really thank you for coming on the podcast with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for staying up uh, late your time. And uh, we don't have to continue the conversation now. I know it's very late for you, but looking forward to picking it up on another occasion. 
Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. 